Good morning, Encounter Church. My name is Ryan Hansen, and I have the privilege of serving here on the preaching team. And I could not be more excited to be back. And I could not be even more excited there's actually people in the room with me. Last time it was me, a giant empty room, and a few tech team members uh, talking to myself, which is weird. But now we got a whole bunch of people, and that's awesome. And I'll tell you what, when Dirk invited me to jump in and deliver this message today, I could not have been more excited. The idea of reframing the Pledge of Allegiance, the one nation, under God, indivisible section specifically, within the context of culture and this political season is exactly what I think I needed. To hear Dirk two years ago talk about one nation and how no matter where we consider ourselves citizens of, we are primarily and first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. Last week, to hear Tim dig into the under God and to be reminded of the message that no matter what we think, God is for everybody and all of us. And today I'm going to try to tackle that last piece, the indivisible piece of the Pledge of Allegiance. And I don't know about you, but based on my Facebook news feed, we are a very divided nation. My Facebook war news feed uh, is less of what Zuckerberg calls as a platform to build community and more of a war zone right now. I got people posting hate against Trump, hate against Biden, love for Trump, love for Biden, hate for Whitmer, love for Whitmer. Doesn't matter what politically is going on, I got both sides on my Facebook news feed, and it's like a war zone, and I just have to like shut it off because I can't deal with the division that is in our country right now. Sometimes just for fun, when like big news happens, I turn on CNN and Fox News and I hit the back and forth button on the TV just to like hear how vastly different we can see things. Like it's crazy. The world is ending. This is the greatest thing ever. It's unbelievable. And I think personally I figured out how to solve the division in my life. All right? Maybe this will help you. All I need to do to fix the division in my life is to only surround myself with people that completely agree with me. And now, I'm obviously joking, but I mean, that's true to a degree, right? If we only surround ourselves with people that don't disagree with us, we're, gonna have di we're never going to have any division. Because when I looked up the definition of division in preparing, preparing for this message, division literally means two visions. The prefix D-I means two, two visions. And the division in my life happens when the vision of how I think things should be doesn't align with how somebody else thinks things should be, and we have conflict. In my life, the biggest example of conflict that I have relationally is with my aunt and her family. <clears throat> now, they are a hyper-political family. I mean, they are a one-party family. They try and true. They bleed for that party, the whole deal, and they want everybody else to vote their way of voting. I am like a self-professed independent. I vote person, not party. I try to look into the person's values and try to figure out if they're capable of maybe making change actually happen, if that's you know, even possible in politics. You know, so some years I vote with them, some years I vote against them, and the conflict happens because they host Thanksgiving. So a couple weeks after each election, I got to go to their house, and then all everybody talks about is politics. And I just, I don't know, I can't deal with it, right? So like there's division all the time at Thanksgiving. And I found a solution to that too. I got married, and now I had options. So now, every Thanksgiving I can be like, oh, I'm sorry, it's just not your turn. Well, Apparently, we did the math the other day. It hasn't been their turn for 10 years, right? So for 10 years, I decided that my best way to avoid relational division over politics was to flee. And I fled as far east as I could within Michigan. I fled all the way to Flint, where my wife's family is. And every year, we would just go over there, 
and it was super low key and it was nice and nobody talked about politics, nobody really cared. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then like 10 years went by, right? And we've gone there once in 10 years. And the problem is that division is not just like skipping, you know, a dinner because who cares about one dinner? Division like grows. The farther you flee from division, the more it grows. You see, I got so good at fleeing the relational division in my life, you know, that I ended up taking up running as like a pastime. You know, I moved my feet, according to World Vision, to bring clean water to kids in Africa, but relationally I moved my feet to avoid division in relationships. And that division grew. And it went from me skipping Thanksgiving to my aunt and her family skipping Easter, which we hosted at our house, to my aunt and her family skipping my daughter's birthday parties, to now we just don't talk at all. And I can't be the only one in a congregation this side size that has skipped out on a meal or a Thanksgiving or a Christmas or an Easter because of politics or because of some relational division that's happened. And I know way too many people, and maybe this applies to you, that division has started to bleed into the relationships in their life. I know way too many people that have quit jobs because of division they had with their boss. I know a couple that broke a long-term friendship with a couple off because they didn't agree with the books on their bookshelf. How could you possibly read stuff from that author? I can't be friends with you if that's what you're putting in your mind. I know of people that have unfriended their grandmas because of political posts on Facebook. And what breaks my heart is I know way too many people that have given up on church or worse, given up completely on faith in God because of division they had with a single Christian. See, division grows over time. But luckily for us, division is nothing new, and there's lots of things that we can learn from. And today I want to talk about a story in the Bible about a man who had division with God over his view of the world. So if you'll flip in your Bible to the book of Jonah, it's a small book in the Old Testament, one of those minor prophets, not because he's not important, just because he didn't write a lot. Uh, This is one of those table of contents is more than approved books because it's only a page and a half long. And Jonah starts right into the meat of the problem. Doesn't waste any time. So join me at verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, I read this, and I'm like, I don't see what Jonah's problem is. He's a prophet. God asked him to preach to a group of people. That's his job, right? So, like, do your job, Jonah. I don't see the problem. And to put context to this, let's throw a map up there. Jonah didn't just, like, run away, right? Like, he went as far away west as the known world existed. Like, he went to Tarshish, which is in Spain, which they didn't know that there was stuff beyond there. He went 2,500 miles in the wrong direction. Like, he should have gone 500 miles to Nineveh. He went 2,500 miles to Tarshish. Like, he was committed to fleeing God's call in his life. And when I read passages of the Bible, I'm like, why? Why on earth would Jonah do this? This just doesn't make, and to that extreme, right? So I got on the Google, and I did some historical research on Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the country of Assyria. And Assyria and Israel shared a border. So, like, if you share a border with countries, Back then, like, there was problems, right? You always went to war because everybody wanted their borders bigger. And Nineveh slash Assyria was known for their just, like, brutal war policies. 
So when they went to war with somebody, they would like put the people that died in war on spikes like, and sprinkle them around like as a warning, don't mess with us. When they captured like nobles or leaders alive, they would like flay them, right? You can look that up. I'm not going to describe it. But they would like flay the nobles. When they captured people alive, they would light them on fire alive just for entertainment. And of the captives that decided to like let live, they would cut off body parts, fingers, toes, nose, eyes, ears, and they'd release them back to their people, permanently maimed as a warning to not mess with them in the future. So Jonah knew about this. Jonah may have known people that were missing body parts because of Nineveh, because of Assyria. And Jonah's view of how the world worked was that they are such bad people because of this. He had a one-dimensional view based on their war strategies, that they were beyond saving. They weren't worth preaching to because look at what they have done. The problem is that God doesn't have that one-dimensional view. You see, Nineveh was also an amazing cultural center. By the time of Jonah, Nineveh had accomplished the following. Nineveh invented the lock and key, which is important, a system for keeping time. They put the 360 degrees on the circle. They invented paved roads. They invented the postal system. They invented the library. They invented plumbing. They invented the flush toilet. And they invented aqueducts for moving water around. You see, Jonah could only see the bad in Nineveh, but they had a whole lot of good going for them too. All those things we currently use and enjoy to this day, right? Jonah's vision was one-dimensional, but God's vision of the people of Nineveh not only included what they had done, what they are doing, but what they could be. See, God had a redemptive vision for the potential that was in Nineveh, and God wanted to see that redemptive potential lived out through Jonah. But Jonah fled. So let's pick this back up and let's see what happens. In verse 4, it says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. You see, of that sentence, I like sometimes defining words within the Bible because sometimes the original language means slightly different than what the translator chose. And the word sent actually means to like throw or hurl, right? And the word threatened actually means to reconsider or to plan. So God literally threw a storm in Jonah's way to give him time to reconsider what he was doing and fleeing from God's call in his life. Now my question to you is, in the relational division that is in your life, what storms is God throwing in your way? And what opportunities is God giving you to reconsider the decisions that you've made? See, in my life, the storm that God threw in my life was my wife. Now, not like a bad storm, but like a couple of years into this whole like skipping out on Thanksgiving, she's like, you know, it's been a couple of years. This like every other year thing's not really panning out. Maybe you should, I don't know, figure this out. And being the person I am, I was like, I kind of like the peace. I don't like the arguments. I ignored the warning that she gave. I didn't reconsider my plan of fleeing Thanksgiving. And as we pick up in verse 5, Jonah pretty much followed suit. It says this, all the sailors were afraid and each circled, around, circled about his own God, or cried out to his own God. 
And they threw the cargo into the sea and lightened the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. See, God gave him a warning, but Jonah decided just to fall asleep. Ignore the whole thing. I'm fleeing. Decision's been made. I'm not reconsidering. I'm done. And a few verses later, Jonah starts thinking about what he's doing. And he says, well, I don't want the you know, crew of the ship to die because of me. So he comes up with a plan. Verse 12 says this. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll become calm. I know it's my fault this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. See, to Jonah, it was better to die than to follow God's plan for Nineveh. He believed so strongly that Nineveh was beyond saving that he would rather die than attempt to preach to it. And I guess what gets me is that the sailors who didn't believe in Jonah's God, who didn't believe in our God, it says they believed in all kinds of different gods, had enough character to try to save him. It says they tried to row back to shore. And when you look up the word row in the Hebrew, it actually means to dig into, right? It's a picture of like the oars digging into the water. My question to everybody is, what beliefs are you so dug into that even God can't change your mind? Jonah was dug into the belief that Nineveh was beyond saving. I was dug into the belief that politics are a private affair, that they put that screen around the voting booth for a reason, and it should stay private, that you can have political opinions, that's fine. You can vote however you want, that's fine. That's democracy, that's the process, that's fantastic. But don't talk to me about it. I've never had any political conversation go good. We either agree, and we're wasting time because we're not doing anything, or we disagree, and it escalates and escalates and escalates, and everybody just gets mad, right? So in my mind, I was dug into the fact that politics should be a private affair, and it's easier to flee from awkward political conversations than to engage in them for the sake of the relationship. So now we get to the verse that everybody knows in Jonah, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now I want to take a slight tangent. It doesn't really affect the content of the message here. But if you believe that this literally happened or figuratively happened, I just want to challenge you for a second. You see, as a Christian, if you follow the same God that I follow, a God that created everything from nothing, a God that throughout the Bible has raised people from the dead, a God that sent his son, Jesus, to earth to die on our behalf, to take our sins with him to the grave and to rise three days later, alive, giving us hope that someday he will bring us back to life, to live forever with him in heaven? If that is the God that you follow and that is what you believe, I find it really hard to think that God couldn't also create some kind of weird fish that Jonah could stay alive inside for three days. I know when I read the Bible, it's tempting to like just write sections off as, that's ridiculous, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, these people thought crazy things. But I don't want to make my God that small may seem crazy to us, but maybe, maybe God made some crazy fish for Jonah to live in just as a point. And what's more convicting for me is that God created that fish, I believe, because Jonah ignored the storm. And how many times do we ignore the storms that God puts in our life to try to teach us something, to give us an opportunity to reconsider something, and then he throws a fish in our life where we have no, oppor- no option but to deal with it. 
See, Jonah couldn't do anything but deal with his problems inside the fish because he was inside of a fish. But sometimes God puts us in a figurative fish to deal with our problems. Maybe the fish in our lives is losing a job. Maybe the fish in our lives is losing a bunch of money. Maybe the fish in our lives is sickness, personally or in the family. I don't know what kind of fish exists in your life, but maybe God is providing you an opportunity where you have no option but to deal with the division in your life, but to learn the lessons that God wants to teach you. And Jonah dealt with his time inside the fish in chapter 2. And I'm not going to read it, but in verses 2 through 9 of chapter 2, Jonah spends them praying. And he deals with the fact that his heart is heart toward Nineveh. That he sees them one eventually. That he's not able to reflect the grace and forgiveness that God had for him to the people of Nineveh. And he changes his mind and he decides that he can go to Nineveh and that he will preach. So I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but the fish barfed him up on shore somewhere and Jonah went to Nineveh. And the story concludes in Jonah 3.3 with Jonah preaching to the Ninevites. In Jonah 3.10, they repent, they stop their sinful ways, they put on the sackcloth, the ashes, the whole deal, and God relents and does not bring the destruction that he threatened. And it ends in Jonah 4.1 with this, Jonah's opinion on the whole situation. Did Jonah learn what God wanted him to learn? Verse 4.1 says this, but to Jonah this seemed wrong and he became angry. See, Jonah could not get past the one-dimensional view of God, that, or of Nineveh that he had. He saw them as a horrible country that did atrocious things in war and were beyond saving. But God saw the redemptive potential in them. God wanted to save them from their sins, just like he wants to save me from my sins and you from your sins. And God gave me this visual that I want to share with you. <clears throat> this helped me over time get a little bit closer to seeing God's view of people. You see, in Genesis 1.27, it says that God created humanity in his image. God created us perfect, as perfect, white, pure, never used as this dishcloth that I've never used, right? The problem is, is that as I interact with people, I get to know them, and I get to know all of their faults, and I lose the ability to see them as the pure image bearer of God that they are. So they vote Democrat, and I get agitated because why would you do that? They vote Republican, and I say, what are you thinking? How could you do that? They don't socially distance the way that I think they should socially distance. What are you doing? They're not wearing a mask. What are you doing? They lie. They steal. They cheat. You fill in the blank. Whatever they do, they do it. And pretty soon, all I can focus on is their faults. And I can't even see the God image that lives within them. And if we go way back to Jonah 1 verse 2, God called Jonah to go preach against Nineveh. But the word preach is actually the Hebrew word Korah, which means cry. If you translate it literally, it says God called Jonah to cry for Nineveh. And I don't know about you, it's very hard to cry for somebody else to extend the grace and the love and the forgiveness that God offers if you haven't experienced it personally. See, my question to you is, have you cried over your sins? Have you felt the love of God? Have you felt the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of your sins from God to a degree that you've been brought to your knees and cried over the gift that that is? 
If you haven't, I'm assuming it's probably pretty hard, at least it has been for me, to extend that to others. You see, Jesus gives us a vision. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus gives us a vision in John 20, or John 17, verse 20 to 23, of his vision for the church and for us. And it says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may know that they may be one. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus' vision for the church and Jesus' vision for us is that we will be so unified and in the context of today, indivisible, based solely on the love that he has for us. Look at his disciples. Peter was a zealot. And if you look up what a zealot was, it's somebody who's so zealous for the law of the Old Testament, for the law of God, that they carried around a little knife called a sakar. And under the occupation of Rome, zealots at the time of Jesus would go around and they would kill Roman soldiers. They would kill tax collectors who were compliant with Rome's rule. Now, one of Jesus' other disciples was Matthew, who happened to be a tax collector. When they were in the room, there should be nothing but like homicidal thoughts circling the air. And yet, because of the love of Jesus, they were brought to such unity. They were so indivisible that together they birthed the church, the reason that we're here today. And that's what Jesus calls us to. That's the vision that he has for the church, and that's the vision that he has for us. But it's only through the lens of Jesus only by being bathed in his love, bathed in his forgiveness, bathed in the grace and the mercy that God offers us, only by feeling the weight of the forgiveness that we've had through the gift and the sacrifice of Jesus, that we can be forgiven of our sins and we can start to see the God image in other people as well. You see, Jesus wants to wash away our sins. Jesus did that on the cross. But until we experience that personally, we're never going to be able to pass that along to other people. So I'd like to say that my story ends with a Hollywood ending because that would make for a much better message. I'd like to say that everything with my aunt has been worked through, that we're great. She comes over for dinner weekly, you know, whatever is appropriate. But it's not. Motivated by my wife. Motivated by the story. My wife provided the storm to make me reconsider what I was doing. Dirk asking me to preach this message provided the fish that forced me into action. I called my aunt this week. I confessed my sin in fleeing from the division that had been between us. I asked for her forgiveness. I tried to lay the first brick toward rebuilding the bridge that I had burnt down, and it did not go well. The bridge is not rebuilt. Things are not fantastic. Who knows if we're going to have Thanksgiving, given the virus and everything this year. But at the same time, I think that's how it should be, and I think that's how God wanted it to be. See, God taught me that relationships can be destroyed in an instant, and we need to be vigilant in how we foster and manage them. 
But once you burn that bridge, once you destroy that relationship, once you flee from the division in your lives, it keeps growing and that bridge gets really, really hard to put together. So I commit to putting that first brick in place. I commit to keep putting bricks in place until I rebuild that bridge. But I want to put it back on you. What would it be like if we lived out Jesus' vision for the church now? That as a people, we committed to be so unified, so indivisible as a church, that the rest of the world saw God's love reflected through us. What would it be like if we picked up the phone, my challenge to you this week, and we called somebody who we're currently divided with? I'd assume the Holy Spirit's put a name in your head throughout this message. I challenge you, pick up the phone. Lay that first brick of reconciliation. Be the united, indivisible church that God calls us to be. Will you join me in prayer? God, we are a broken, broken people. We naturally focus on the faults of others and we flee from uncomfortable situations. Bring us to tears over our sin. Help us to feel the weight of our failure. Help us to experience the mercy and the forgiveness and the love that you offer us. And help us to see through the lens of Jesus so that we can see past all those faults in others and see the God image that you put in them. Help us to eliminate the division in our lives and start building the bridges of reconciliation that you call us to. Help us to be the unified, indivisible church that you intended us to be. Amen.